Well, hey, everybody, welcome to The Crossing today. It's always good to have you with us. Today is a special day in the life of The Crossing because today we have our first preview service at Midtown, our new campus that we have at Valley View in Sahara. So it's going to be just a great, great day. So that is going to be tonight in the parking lot. And so if you are at the 6 right now, then I am speaking there live. And so we're glad that you are here at the 6 with us as well. Well, we now know who has made it to the World Series. That's all been set. And so I'm a Cardinal fan. And so my family is in mourning this week after getting swept in the National League Championship. But the only thing that makes that okay is the is the Yankees didn't make it. So everything is right in the world, and so we're glad about that. But I grew up playing baseball. I've always been a baseball fan. When I was a kid, I played baseball. My, my little league team went to the championship series. And this bat right here, this is Brian Dallimore's bat. Brian is one of our elders here at the Crossing, and he's a former Major League Baseball player. And this is his game bat when he played for the San Francisco Giants. And one of the cool things about Brian... You can, I don't know if you're giving the Giants a hand or Brian. You can give Brian, but not the Giants. But one of the cool things about Brian is his very first hit as a major league baseball player was a grand slam home run. I mean, how cool is that? that that's pretty amazing. We say that his rookie card's pretty famous because in the background of his rookie card is Barry Bonds. And so we always say that. But there's a guy by the name of Robert Adair. And he is a Yale physicist. And he wrote a book on the physics of baseball. And he studied the science of hitting a fastball. Now, a 90-mile-an-hour fastball travels 60.5 feet. So that's the distance from the pitcher's mound to home plate, 60.5 feet and 400 milliseconds. So that's a little bit less than half a second. Now, among his findings, as he found, is that it takes 200 milliseconds for the batter to actually locate the ball, the ball in the air and decide whether he is going to swing or not. Now, if he decides to swing, it takes another 100 milliseconds to decide the location of a swing, high or low, inside or outside. And then the swing itself takes 150 milliseconds. So it takes a total of 450 milliseconds to decide if you're going to swing, the location of the swing, and to actually swing. And it only takes 400 milliseconds for the ball to travel across the plate. So his conclusion is that it is impossible to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. The only problem with that is we see it being done on TV every day. We may not know how they do it. We just know that they can do it. Here's where some of you are with God. Is that you have, maybe you have questions or you have doubts about God. Maybe there are certain things that you don't understand. Maybe you're going through a situation right now that just seems absolutely impossible to make it through. Or God doesn't answer your prayers like you think that he should. And so you conclude that God can't handle your problems. Or worse yet, that he won't handle your problems. Therefore, God cannot be trusted with your life. See, this is why faith was such a big deal to Jesus. Jesus was always saying to his disciples, you have such little faith. Ye have little faith. 
Because even though Jesus never let them down, even though Jesus proved faithful time and time again, so many times they proved that they would um, give in to their fear instead of faith. And we do the same thing. You do the same thing. So the Apostle John comes along, and he says that there are reasons to believe in Jesus. There are reasons to place your faith in Jesus. Last week, we began this series that we're calling Signs, that we're walking through the seven signs of the Gospel of John. That the Apostle John arranged his gospel around seven miracles that Jesus performed. Now, he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. And he gives us a formula for our belief. And here's what he talks about, is that these signs that Jesus performed, they point to the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And that is what leads us to belief. John has a purpose statement in his gospel at the very end of of the gospel of John, he writes to you and me, and he tells us his purpose in writing it. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And so these aren't the only signs. These are the signs that he chose to record. And it goes on and it says, but these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that this is who his identity is. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, John is hoping that what happened to him will happen to you. That these signs convinced him that Jesus was the Son of God. And he's hoping that you will believe that as well. Well, today, we're hitting our second sign. The second sign is the healing of the nobleman's son. Maybe in your Bible you have a little heading that kind of gives a summary of it. Maybe yours says the healing of the nobleman's son or the healing of the royal official. But this is the second sign, and it's found in John chapter 4 if you want to follow along with us. But let me just kind of set the scene for you in this. Let me just kind of show you where this all takes place. That last week we left off Jesus in Cana. Jesus was at a wedding in Cana, and then he headed home to Capernaum, which is his hometown during the ministry years. And Jesus is going to go down to Jerusalem for the Passover. But the normal, you know, the way you would think that you would go is just straight across here. But that is not how they would travel. It's not how the Jewish people would travel. They would actually go around this way, and they would walk along the Jordan River and come in this way because they didn't want to walk through the country of Samaria that there was this racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans because the Jews were con- the Samaritans were considered half-breeds, that they were half-Jews, half-Gentiles that are intermarried, and so a good Jewish person would never walk through Samaria. And so Jesus is with you know, all of the people. This is the normal route that they would go. Well, when Jesus gets here to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. And inside the temple courtyard, the temple courtyard is where the Gentiles are allowed to worship, money changers have set up tables. And they're selling sheep and cattle and doves, and they are ripping people off. Maybe that's how you feel when you go to Disneyland, and they charge $50 for a bottle of water. You're like, how could this cost so much money? Well, thousands of people were there for Passover, And they were required to buy a sacrifice. 
So the money changers use this as an opportunity to charge exorbitant prices. And so Jesus goes in there and he drives them out. That he begins to flip their tables over and he gets rid of them. He says, you've taken, you know, God's house, this house of prayer, and turn it into a den of robbers. And he moves them all out. Well, the leaders of the temple ask Jesus an important question. They don't ask, what do you think you are doing? They ask him, who do you think you are? Which is the right question, but they didn't even know that they were asking the right question. And Jesus tells them. Well, while Jesus is in Jerusalem, he meets up with a Pharisee at night by the name of Nicodemus. So this is his own Nick at night moment right here. And he performs a bunch of miracles while he's there. And then he heads back home. But this time he tells his disciples that we have to go through Samaria. And the disciples are thinking, no, we don't have to go through Samaria because no good Jew would go through Samaria. But Jesus did. Because Jesus had an appointment with the woman at the well. Now, she didn't know that Jesus had an appointment with her, but she was going to find out. Jesus had to go through, and he meets this woman at the well at Sychar at Jacob's well. She had been married five times, and now she's living with a man that she's not married to, and Jesus changes her life. And then Jesus goes through, and he ends up back at Cana, and this is where we pick up our story today. So any questions? Are you all with me about where we are? Okay, this is how it starts here in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. It says, once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now the first sign was a joyful occasion. It was a wedding. And the second sign is a heartbreaking occasion, and Jesus wades in to both. He gets involved in a celebration, and he gets involved in a sickness. Now, this is a royal official right here, and John doesn't tell us who it is, but he's probably part of the entourage of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the king of the Galilee region where Jesus is living. And this guy is stationed in Capernaum. Capernaum is about 20 miles away from Cana, and this would have been a full day's walk. But because he's a royal official, he probably rode a chariot down there. It would have been a two- to three-hour chariot ride. This guy is an important, wealthy, political official. And it says, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, I'm just making this up. I'm just making this up. But maybe his wife, maybe this guy's wife had heard that Jesus was back in the region. Jesus is starting to become famous. And what Jesus just did at the Passover, healing all of these people, maybe she gets word that he's back in that area. And so she tells her husband, you go get that fellow and you bring him back here. And don't you dare come home without him. So this guy comes to Jesus, maybe because, you know, his wife has given him the marching orders, and it says that he begged him. What this means is that he pleaded over and over and over again. Forget dignity. Forget his position in society. Forget his theology. Forget his worldview. His son is dying, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to bring Jesus there. This guy is important, he is wealthy, and none of that matters because at this moment, he's just a desperate 
father. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. That there is nothing more painful than watching your children suffer. See, when you're going through something in your life, it's hard. When your kids are going through something, it is excruciating, and you feel so helpless. When my daughter was in high school and college, she had a stomach issue that we could not get diagnosed. And so throughout those years, she was in and out of hospitals and emergency rooms. She was subjected to almost every test imaginable. She was prescribed multiple medications and ended up having surgery to remove her gallbladder only to find out that that was not the same issue that she was dealing with. Although her gallbladder needed to be removed, she still had this excruciating pain in her stomach. Well, after years of going from doctor to doctor, she was finally accepted to UCLA Medical Center where she was able to see one of the top specialists in the country for the disease that she had. And there were days where she was in so much pain, she couldn't get out of bed. She would just be there all day long. See, when you're in a helpless situation, you are desperate for anything. And this guy in our story may be an important political officer, but at this moment, he's just a father who's scared he's going to lose his son. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, You will never believe. Now, this seems so insensitive. It seems so un-Jesus-like in the way that Jesus would come to people. But Jesus is not just addressing the nobleman. Jesus is addressing the crowd because now everywhere that Jesus went, the crowds would be around. And by this time, word has gotten back about the miracles that Jesus has performed in Jerusalem. Word has got back about all that he did when he was there at the Passover And people were saying, you got to come see this. you got to come check this out. They weren't interested in seeing the signs so they could believe. They just wanted to see the circus act. And perhaps Jesus was testing this guy's faith as well. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. He addresses him as, sir, I may be above you in society, but I'm placing myself under your authority. I am begging you to do something. I'm not here to see some razzle-dazzle. I'm here because my son is about to die. He believes that either he convinces Jesus to come to his house and his son is saved, or if he can't convince him that his son's going to die. But there's a third option, and this option is not about his ability to persuade Jesus. This option is about his faith in Jesus. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. This word go right here, what this means in the Greek language, it just means go about your business. Just go about your business. There's no reason to hurry. There is no need to worry. Just go, your son will live. And this is where the tension comes with faith. That we are asked to take Jesus at his word. We are to go about our days with our unanswered prayers, confident that Jesus is who he claimed to be. 
See, we've all seen people who do this. See, it's so inspiring. When you see somebody who really does this, maybe they've had a burden that just won't go away, a sickness that won't be healed, a financial situation that is not turned around, a marriage that did not make it. And we've watched people like this continue to place their faith in God anyway, and it is inspiring to us. It makes us go, I want that kind of faith. I love this. It says, the man took Jesus at his word, and he departed. He took Jesus at his word. He didn't say, give me a sign, and I'll believe. He walked home by faith and not by sight. He believed, and then he behaved like he believed. See, Jesus has a way of calling us into deeper places. That he not only calls us to have faith, he calls us to act upon that faith. Jesus may be calling you into a deeper place in your life. It says, well, he was still on his way. His servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Doesn't this make you go, yesterday? Yesterday, your son was dying. You could have gotten back on your chariot and made it home before dinner time. Yesterday, but he's not in a hurry. And it's not because he's not concerned about his son. He believes something about Jesus. And now it's confirmed. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. That his faith is confirmed. That these are not just random acts of kindness. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He is a savior. And so John summarizes it up like this. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. He and his whole household believed because they saw something about Jesus and it convinced them that he was who he said that he was. See, here's the word that creates so much tension for us. It's faith. This word creates so much tension for us. See, on paper, it is impossible to hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. But we see it done every day on TV. Your life situation right now, in your life, your situation may seem impossible. But faith says what may feel impossible, this is where God does his best work in you. See, what you feel like could not ever be fixed, this is where God loves to show his strength. See, if you've got it all figured out, that doesn't take any faith. That doesn't make your faith stronger. Ease and comfort never make you stronger. Now, if we were to go to the gym together and decide to work out together, you know what makes us stronger. It's not sitting in the locker room and watching Netflix. That does not make you stronger. You take some weight, and it is the resistance of that weight that makes you stronger. 
that as you're working out, it is that resistance and that struggle that makes you stronger. Resistance strengthens your faith. Resistance strengthens your faith. This is what James tells us. In his book, James is the brother of Jesus, and he just says this. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the, look at this, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. He says, let, faith, let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete and not lacking anything. See, there is something that happens that makes you mature in your faith, that makes your faith complete, not lacking anything. And what it is, it is the testing of your faith that brings this about in your life. I was at a pastor's conference this past week. And whenever I go to a pastor's conference, I have the opportunity to, young, to run into younger pastors and to be able to talk to them and just talk to them about their situation, to mentor them through maybe what they're going through. And inevitably, I always get asked this question in some way. It's just kind of like this. How did you learn to lead at a church like that? How did you learn to lead at the crossing? Well, it didn't come by all of the successes. It didn't come by the big Christmas or the Easter or the baptism Sunday or the serve day where we have 900 people out there. It didn't come by the highlight reel. It came by the difficult seasons of my life. 2004, 5, and 6 were some of the most challenging years of my life. I had to make some very painful decisions about some staff that I had to let go during that season. We were building our first building, which is the building that's right here across the courtyard, and we ran out of money. There were some unforeseen expenses we had to pay for, and we ran out of money at that point. Well, then, after God made a way through that, we moved into the building, and then people started accusing me of false motives. I started receiving emails, and people were leaving the church saying, well, you just want to be in the spotlight. That's all you care about. You don't care about people anymore. You don't care about Jesus anymore. You just want to be in the spotlight. And they left the church, and it just crushed me. It just took a toll on me. That is how I learned how to lead. That is how I learned how to walk by faith. If you have everything figured out, that's not walking by faith. That is walking by sight. Let me give you a definition of faith based on this story that we've looked at. Is that faith is living every day as if God has already done what he promised to do in your life. That is what faith is. It is living every day as if God has already done it, like he's already done it. I love what it says about this guy. The man took Jesus at his word, and he departed. That is faith. That is faith. Faith is living every moment like God's promises have already been fulfilled. See, walking by faith is not a feeling. It is not this warm and fuzzy feeling that you feel good about it. Walking by faith is not wishful thinking. It is not, well, I hope it all comes together. Walking by faith is living every single day of your life as if Jesus is who he claimed to be. Walking by faith means that I trust what Jesus said about purity and about marriage, about money, about serving, about generosity. 
Walking by faith is always defined by what you do. It's by what you do. And faith looks different at different seasons of our life. See, every stage of life requires faith. And it looks different at every single stage. There is the high school kind of faith. That everyone else is cheating to get ahead and you're faced with a choice to either live out your faith or to compromise. This faith says, God, I am trusting you with my future. There is the single in Las Vegas kind of faith. And everyone you meet has a completely different value system than you do. And you find yourself tempted to settle. You find yourself tempted to move in, to give in. But this faith lives in confidence that God has the best life for you. There is the married and just had your first baby faith. And you can't believe that they're going to let you bring this little human being home with you. You're like, nobody's even making me sign anything. I can bring this little human being home. And you're afraid you're going to break him. You're afraid you're going to mess her up so bad she'll be in therapy for the rest of her life. And this takes faith. There is the parents of teenager faith. You wondered if you prepared them for this next season of life. And you're afraid that if you enforce the rules, they aren't going to like you. Well, let me, in, let, me let you in on a little secret. They are not going to like you. But living by faith says that you decide to be the parent anyway. There is the tragedy test of faith. There is the death of someone you love kind of faith. There is the getting through a divorce kind of faith. There is the prodigal child kind of faith. A faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. A faith that has been tested is a faith that can be trusted. What would it look like for you to get up tomorrow and to go about your day, to go about your week like God has already fulfilled his promise to you? What would that look like? For you just to go about what you normally do, but you've just trusted with your life that God has already fulfilled his promises. The rest of the story about my daughter is after years of doctors and surgeries and medications and specialists, God healed her. Nobody could explain why she had pain all of those years, and nobody could explain why she was healed, but we knew. And we didn't suddenly have faith when God answered our prayers like we wanted him to answer them. We didn't suddenly have faith when he answered these prayers we'd been praying for years and years. He grew our faith through the pain. That God took our lives and he began to shape our character through the pain because that's how God does a work in us. Resistance grows your faith. And this doesn't mean that you won't go through pain or loss. This doesn't mean that you won't have struggles and hardships. But if you want to become mature in your faith, if you want to become complete, not lacking anything, it only happens through the testing of your faith. And then we become more like Jesus. 
I love the summary of this guy in our story. He took Jesus at his word. He took Jesus at his word. What a legacy of faith. I'm hoping that one day I'll be remembered for that, that Shane just took Jesus at his word. Even when he didn't know how it was going to all turn out, even when life did not turn out the way he wanted it to, he just took Jesus at his word. And that is the life that I want for you as well. That you just take Jesus at his word. And I know that right now some of you have come in here with crushing burdens. That you are going through things that most of us maybe could not even understand. But I want your legacy of faith to be that you just trusted Jesus at his word. And so you take the next step. You take that next step of faith. That's what that means. When you trust Jesus at his word, you just take the next step and the next step. And you may not know where it's going to lead, but you know who is leading you. It's Jesus. And so I want to pray with you. And maybe for some of you, maybe this is just confession time. Maybe it's just to say to God, God, I'm confessing my lack of faith in you today. Because I felt like maybe, God, I felt like that my issues are too big, and so I've just been taking them over, and so, God, I am giving them back to you. I'm just going to take you at your word, that you will never leave me, you'll never forsake me. And so I'm committing to the next step, and the next step, and the next step. Let's pray together. God, thank you for preserving this story for us. God, that you, you preserve this story of faith of a man who just took Jesus at his word to encourage us to take Jesus at his word. God, you have promised us that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. Jesus, you promised us that you would be with us always to the very end of this world. You'll be with us always so we take that next step in faith, trusting that. God, do your work in us. Do what you need to do to make us mature and complete and not lacking anything in our faith. So we pray this in the name of the one who saves us, the one who changes us, the one who gives us life. Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.